In case, in case you're wondering just how weird the things wire-wise in this room are today, this morning when I walked into the building, there are two computers in the back booth, one for audio and one for video. And when I was moving the mouse of the video computer, it was moving the mouse on both computers. Like, there's no logical technological explanation for that. I'm a pretty big geek when it comes to that stuff, and I have not been able to figure out why <laughs> that is. But there is stuff crossed today. Uh, this is one of the weird days where things just go wrong. Uh, by God's providence, there's maybe five hymns in total that I have fully memorized from front to back. And before the throne of God above is literally one of those hymns. And so as the slides are going to fail, if they're going to do it, good thing they did it on that particular one. Hmm? They were good up there? We should just pray. Maybe next week is the week that we take to have worship and heritage, just as a palate cleanser uh, to, get, to get away from anything that plugs in. Maybe the Lord's telling us to just unplug everything permanently. Who here thinks pipe organs? Anybody? Yeah. Oh, that's, wow, I've been preaching here for years, and that's the most response that I've ever heard to anything. So that's a sad reality that should tell us something. Um, <laughs> one of the more interesting aspects of, of uh, being a parent comes in the dynamics of discipline with your kids. If you have kids, you, you know this. H how you discipline, when you discipline, the way that they respond to discipline and all those things, it's just a tough thing to navigate. And it's really interesting some of the things that happen when we have to deal with discipline with our kids. There's something really interesting that happens specifically when our kids mess up. Right? They run and they hide from us. I've noticed this, not even just in my, in my older, in my son, but in my one-year-old as well. It's like when they, when they do something wrong and they know that you're about to come at them for it, even if they're not like going to get it, nothing bad, but they just know, even if you're wanting to go talk to them about it, they instinctively run, hide, turn away, don't make eye contact. There's this shame for having done wrong that is kind of built into who they are, right? And it's opposite of any other time when you're relating to them. So when you have especially little kids, they come to you for literally everything, right? They have a boo-boo. They come running to you. They're bored. They come running to you. They want a snack. They come running to you. They realize that you're giving attention to a sibling. They come running to you. For whatever reason, the kids, when they're little, they always want you. They always want your attention. They always want your focus to be on them until they have done something wrong and then they run and they hide, right? My son's gaze does backflips to avoid me when I'm trying to talk to him about something he's done wrong. I can literally make eye contact and say, hey, kid, like, let's talk about why that was a, a good or a bad choice. And he'll, you know, like everything possible and imaginable just to avoid that confrontation in the midst of having committed a wrong. Now, why do we do this? I would assume that for kids, it's in their kind of DNA of who they are. And I think it's in our DNA as sinful people of who we are too. Right? If you recall in the garden when God was walking with Adam and Eve, all was perfect. They weren't hiding. But then they took a bite and they realized their nakedness and they covered up. And what happens? God is walking through the garden. And one of the first things we hear is they were hiding from him. And he's like, why are you hiding? How do you even know what it means or is to hide your face from me, to be away from me, to turn from me, to hide from me, to, to lower your head from, from me in shame. That's a concept that enters with a sinful world. Right? 
That's why in Romans, when Paul is starting to talk about sin, he says that there's certain there's sin in, in people that don't even follow God, but they, there's this natural understanding of right and wrong that, that occurs in the human soul. Right? We know when we've done wrong, and when we do wrong, there's this intrinsic shame that hits us. We hide it. That's why most of us in this room don't know the depths of each other's sin, because you're never, ever going to want to share that with people here. Right? That's why when we say things like, if your whole life sinfulness could be put on a screen, you'd never come back to church here. Right? We have this natural inclination to hide. We avoid any time that we can avoid judgment or perceived judgment, or the fear of potential judgment that might not even be realized. We run and we hide. We avoid it in relationships. We avoid it in the business settings of our workplaces. We avoid it at all costs, wherever, whenever we can. We're in the midst of a series called Messengers, and we're looking at the 12 minor prophets, and this is the second week. And if you remember, the prophets aren't minor because of their significance, but minor for no other reason than the size of their books. Right? Isaiah is massive. Joel, which we're looking at today, is three chapters long. and We could read it in about five or six minutes if we wanted to. Right? And so they're not minor league. They're major league, but they're minor in terms of their size. And today we're looking at the book of Joel, which is a really unique little work in which Joel, he spends a lot of time talking about this concept of judgment. Right? He talks about the way that Israel is judged, and through Israel he talks about the way that we are judged and what God's response is in that judgment and how we ought to relate to it. It's a study of history and of future, but it's also this deep profile on the nature of who God is, on his character. So let's dig in together a little bit and explore this book, and we'll see how it shapes us as we walk out of here from our place today. First, some background. Joel is unique in the Minor Prophets in, in a couple ways. He's unique in the sense that we know absolutely nothing about Joel. We know nothing of him. He, he's not significant. We don't know who he is. We don't know when he lived. The only thing we, we know is from the very opening of the book of Joel itself, where it gives us the name of his dad. And we don't really know him either. His name is Pethuel. And we know nothing about Pethuel. There's about a dozen or so Joels of significance in Scripture, but there's nothing that we can use to tie this Joel, the author of this prophecy, to any of them. So we don't know. He could be one of them. He might not be one of them. We have zero clue who Joel is. He's a John Doe of Scripture in its entirety. Not only that, but we really can't even date the book. Right? Last week we talked about each prophet, each minor prophet, it's significant where and how and when they wrote. Right? Did they write for the northern kingdom, for the southern kingdom? Did they write before the exile, during or after the exile? With Joel, we don't know. There's no date. He doesn't date himself with any kings, right? like Hosea did during the reign of such and such. He doesn't give any indication of when he's writing or even really to whom. There's some very minor hints, and scholars have made some educated guesses, but we really don't know. So take this with a grain of salt, but here is the best guess as to when Joel and where Joel was written. We, we think, with a very, very mustard grain seed size certainty, that Joel was preaching mostly to the southern kingdom, to Judah, 
right? And we think that because of his references to the temple in Jerusalem and those kinds of things. And the other thing we think is that he probably wrote in the southern kingdom after the exile's end. Because there's a lot of references to things like temple, but there's never references to any A, kings or rulers, or B, impending judgment from a specific nation. So he doesn't mention like Babylon, and he doesn't mention any kings that will be reigning. So really the only time during the time of the prophets when there was no king but temple, right, but, but there was a place was after the exile. And so we think that it was kind of during the time of Ezra or Nehemiah, the rebuilding of things, right? Everything's in shambles, but they're back. So that's our best possible guess that we can surmise, is that he's writing to a, a southern kingdom, a Judah, after their return from the exile, when they're at a point where they have seen all the devastation and destruction, and they're kind of starting to, to rebuild themselves, to recreate themselves as God's people. The book reads entirely as kind of an oracle from God himself, right? It starts, there's a little narrative reference at the beginning, and it just starts with the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And then from there on out, it seems almost as if God's speaking himself. Joel's just kind of writing down, here's what God said to me and told me to tell to you, right? And his book splits into these kind of poetic sections. There's three, three chapters. The first chapter of Joel is this recounting of a locust plague. And we can kind of surmise from the way it's written that Joel is recounting an actual plague of locusts that they have gone through, that, that has occurred, right? It might also serve as a metaphor for the exile itself, but it seems like there was an actual infestation, an actual locust plague that occurred. And if you know anything about infestation of locust plagues, locusts can come in and they just decimate everything. They kill all crop, all growth. They just kill anything in their path, and they can take up hundreds and hundreds of, of square miles as one swarm of locusts that are massive that come in to just destroy everything for good. And back then, you couldn't just go to the freezer section when stuff was destroyed, so it probably caused famine and all, all kinds of issue for these people. And so he spends chapter one recounting this plague of locusts and talking about how bad it was. And then, when he gets to chapter two, he switches gears and talks about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, the way it's described is this future tribulation. So he's saying, look, we've gone through this plague together. See how bad and awful it was. There's something coming that is far worse. And the second chapter, when he gets into that kind of coming impending doom, he starts using references like armies and chariots. And he describes a sight that is just so beyond destructive that we can't even begin or imagine. Right? He's telling them there is a judgment coming so awful, so thorough, so inescapable that no one would be able to stand against it. Blackness will spread. Darkness will cover. Fire will devour. Desolate wilderness will be left in ruins. War horses and rumbling chariots that leap on top of mountains. People in complete anguish. It's this devastating sight that Joel describes in his prophecy to God's people. And so what he's saying is, look, like the locust thing, they're like, yeah, that was the worst thing we've ever gone through. He's saying, yeah, that, that pales 
in comparison to the judgment that's coming. And so, really, chapters 1 through the first half of chapter 2 are Joel pronouncing judgment of the Lord upon the people of Israel. He's saying, you've already suffered through judgment. They're like, well, what do you mean judgment is coming? We just went through exile. We went through this locust plague. We went through all this stuff. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. There is something coming that makes that stuff look like child's play. The army of the Lord is coming in judgment against you. You have no idea what could possibly come of that. And so he ends that section with this, with this kind of phrase of who could stand? Who could endure it? Who could possibly get through such a thing? Right? And that's how the first half of Joel ends. He doesn't even tell them why the judgment's coming. I think Joel has read a bunch of other prophets as he would expect the Israelites to have read as well. And so he doesn't need to accuse them of any specific sins. I think everybody kind of understands they've already been accused. They've already been exiled. They've already been punished. They know why God is judging them, but they don't know how bad is yet to come. He says, listen, there's a judgment coming that is so beyond devastating that you can't even imagine. And what he's talking about, what he's prophesying, what he's foretelling is the final judgment. The things that are described in the book of Revelation. He's saying, people of Israel here, the Lord is not done judging yet. If you thought exile was all you were going to have, there's a judgment coming that is so filled with fury that you aren't even beginning to imagine how to get ready for that. Pretty hopeless. And then... Joel pivots. Right around the middle of chapter 2, there's a, there's a complete 180 pivot in the way that Joel writes. And so we're going to pick up at that pivot point in our reading today. And so let's stand together as we begin in Joel chapter 2, verses 12, and we'll go through 29. So they've just been given this death sentence, this gloom report of what's coming then here God speaks. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibules and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will not, no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. 
for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. There's a lot in there, but it sounds a lot better than the first couple sections of Joel. He does this pivot, and there's a lot to unpack here. So first Joel opens in just the first few verses, verses 12 through 14, with this clear call to repentance. And we're going to look at that deeply in a minute, but let's look at God's response to that repentance. Right, so Joel is saying, repent, and then the response of the Lord in verse 15 is to open up with this massive call to pay attention. Right? Everybody's turned to repent, and then the Lord says, wake up, O Zion, pay attention. And the, the level of, of depth that he gives of how much attention we should pay is pretty staggering, right? He's saying, look, all the priests pay attention. All the congregants pay attention. Call all the assemblies. Anything and everybody that gathers for any reason whatsoever, you should gather now. And he says, look, even kids. Well, kids don't really belong in the time. I don't, kids need to come. Uh, well, well, I'm in the middle of nursing right now. I have a new infant. Doesn't matter. Bring the infant. The infant needs to be there and hear this too. Everybody. And then it talks about the bridegroom and the bride in her chambers. And, and culturally what we're talking about there is, well, well, we just got married and we're gone on our honeymoon. Cut it short. You need to come back and hear this. Do you see like the urgency that is communicated in this really lengthy paragraph? The Lord says, listen up, my people. Look at what the Lord has done and is about to do. And the rest of the passage describes the Lord's relenting and merciful turn and work in the people of Israel and through that to us as well. In the midst of this prophesied turmoil and the destruction that God says he's going to bring and the judgment that he's going to pronounce upon Israel, he says, I will send grain, wine, and oil that satisfies you completely. I will remove all nations, every enemy that is, under you, that is over you. I will drive them out, not just for now, but for good. I will make pastures green, and I will make trees bear fruit in every season. I will send rain to a land that is desolate. I will overflow every one of your needs. I'm going to restore every single thing that the locusts have eaten and destroyed. <coughs> he promises his people will never be put to shame again. And then he promises that they will know him as their God and that he will be among them. And the promise goes so far that it even covers the male and female servants 
His Spirit will be poured out upon them as well. <coughs> Sorry, I'm battling an upper respiratory infection this week. So I'm kind of barely, barely talking. But. So in the midst of this proclamation, this impending turmoil, right, the bad news comes and it says, who could bear it? And Joel proclaims that God's promise is that of sparing and vindication and rescue of all his people. So what does Joel say is required of the people in order for God to do that? Yet even now, 2.12, return to me with all of your hearts. Right? Joel is calling the people of God to repentance in the midst of a hopeless situation. In the midst of this pronunciation of judgment upon the people, he's saying you must repent. And then he gives them some specifics. Repentance should be accompanied with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Repentance is not just a, a sorry, a oh, my bad God. Right? Repentance is not just a, a weekly confession that we read out loud together in church in a half-hearted kind of way. Joel's calling them to a repentance that is deep, that is sorrowful, that is a recognition of the wickedness of what they have done and how they have strayed from the Lord to the point where they cry out to God and they're weeping and they're mourning the depths of their sin and how far away they have strayed. And he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Right? What's that all about? Well, there was customs when it came to mourning in, in the time of the Israelites, right? When they were in mourning, they would do certain things to signify that. One of the things they would do is they would put on sackcloth and ashes. They would take off their good clothing and they would put on gross clothing, itchy clothing. You know, they just looked wrong and bad, right? And they would signify mourning in that way. We do that today even. When you come to a funeral, what color do you most likely wear? Black, right? We have things that we do that outwardly signify mourning, if you ever go see a funeral in a movie, right? Everybody's black. All the women have veils that are black and hats on. We don't necessarily do that each time. But we all wear these, these gloomy colors to signify the mourning. And what he's saying here is, look, repent from your heart, not just from the outward appearance. Like the repentance that you offer to the Lord, it can't just be a, a kind of sorry I see this at home. One of the things we struggle with is we try to get our kids to, to, to say sorry when they do something wrong, whether it's you know, someone that they see in the grocery store and they brush by or if they hurt their sibling. We're like, listen, you need to go over and give them a hug and say sorry. And, and what happens is this is what they do. Sorry. Right? We're like, no, 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 no. Like, we, we, need, we need heartfelt. We need you to mean it. Right? Repentance not just be this thing, this motion that we go through where we say we belong to Christ. And so every week we just do whatever we want, but then we come back and we just repent through private or public confession. Right? It's not what it's about. Right? What Joel is saying is repent from your heart. By the way, Repentance is really only between your heart and God. Each week you come and we, we have a prayer of confession and we recite it. And then I, usually as, a, as your pastor, I pronounce some kind of forgiveness over the congregation. You realize that like, I, I have no power of forgiveness. I'm not a priest. 
And those who are priests who feel like they have some kind of power to pronounce forgiveness are wrong. Right? There's nothing magical in me pronouncing forgiveness over you for the confession of your sins. The, the, the only thing that I do up here is to out loud proclaim a reality that Christ has already made come true in your hearts as you repent and seek forgiveness. I'm not pronouncing forgiveness over you. I am telling you merely about the forgiveness that Jesus has already pronounced over you. Right? Repentance is a thing that happens deep in the recesses of our hearts. Right? And that's what Joel is after here, a genuine repentance, a heart that doesn't just say sorry, but that mourns the ways in which we wrong the Lord, that mourns the ways in which we don't follow him and turns 180 and seeks to run to him. It's the kid who, when there's judgment coming, when their parents are disciplining, doesn't do this, but focuses, shows remorse, and seeks to change and grow. That gets it, that says, yeah, Lord, man, I've wronged you. Every day I go against you in these ways, and, and I just, I, I, I'm sorry. I need to change. Help me change. How many of you in the past year have in any significant way spent time mourning, authentically mourning and repenting of sin in your life? Rather than just going through the Sunday motions when the slides call you to stand up and confess. How many of you mourn your sin? How many of you seek actively to say, what, what this year can I turn away from and toward God that I haven't yet? What parts of me need to actively die to the Lord? Because I, I have news from you. Unless you're dead, you're not done. Like we constantly grow more and more into God's likeness, which means at any given point, no matter where you are in life, there is a whole lot wrong with you and with, with me that needs to die to the Lord. Every one of us has wretched things that we need to kill off, that need to die to the Lord. Right? So Joel is saying to Israel and to us, the world is an awful place. Just look at the recent locust plague. Just look at the recent thing that we might enter now. Right? What can we look at in the last five years to say this world is an awful place? Do you want me to make an alphabetical list? Right? The world is an awful place. Things are also going to get significantly worse. Turmoil and battle is coming. In the final days before Christ's return, stuff is going to get more and more ugly. If you think that this world is just going to get better and better and better until it turns into heaven one day, buckle up. Scripture promises us things will get worse. But then it promises us that things will get better. See, things get worse because God is going to exercise his judgment upon the world. And that's something really hard for us to wrestle with. We don't like to talk about this. And it's one of the things that non-Christians most struggle with when it comes to any acceptance of the gospel. We don't want to deal with a God who is judgmental. And part of that is because when we think of judging, we read our own judgments into that. And we think that God judges the way that we judge. We think that God judges in any way that is vindictive. It's not. Right? A lot of times we don't want God to be the judge. But here's the reality. God has to judge sin 
and evil. He cannot not judge it. His nature forbids it because he is a God of perfection and goodness. And so where there is a lack of goodness, where there is evil, it must be dealt with. Otherwise, he would not be a perfect God. It would make him not God at all. And so God must judge. And this is where the gospel begins to shine through in the book of Joel. Because here's what Joel says. For those whom repent, for those who turn to the Lord, for those who heed the warning and seek forgiveness and seek to grow and seek to change and lay down the things of this world and pick up the things of the Lord. God is a God of relenting. Yes, he is perfectly just in his judgments. Yes, his judgments are coming. Yes, they are certain. Yes, they're going to get ugly. But God is also a God of relenting. And the whole book of Joel is a call to repentance because Joel is trying to get the people to understand that we serve a God who, yes, he is wickedly against sin and he will crush it and anything in its way is going to get obliterated, but he is a God who relents and loves his people. And for those who would walk with him, he provides a way for escape of that judgment. How does he spare him? Through his son, Jesus Christ. If you place your faith in the saving work of Christ, if you follow him and live a life that is of genuine, heartfelt repentance, then you don't live under the fear of God's judgment. Joel here proclaims the very essence of the gospel to us. And so this book is supposed to bring Israel to their knees because apparently locusts and plagues and exile haven't done the job. And I think a lot of times we live a life of false security. We feel like we can just kind of do what we please. And we read books like the prophets and the accounts of what happened during the time of kings and the exiles and the judgments. And we think that somehow we are immune from those things to come. What Joel is trying to say to the people of Israel and also to us is, you're not immune. No one is. If you think you're going to escape the judgment of the Lord, you have another thing coming. Your only shot is a deep, heartfelt repentance and a turning away from wickedness. That's your only shot. And when you do that, the sin that is in you, the sin that is a part of you, is forgiven in Christ. You need a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior that you have. He reminds the people that judgment is coming, that it's not in the distance, that it's eminent, but that through Christ there is a way. And so the remainder of the book of Joel spends all of its time applying this mercy of God that comes with repentance. Right? He says that God will restore the people, and he says that specifically they will be restored in three ways that apply to Israel and to us. Number one, they will be restored within the sense of divine presence. So where God is removed from our presence, in restoration, his presence is restored to us. Right? That's why in Revelation, when the new Jerusalem comes, we read, and behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be our God and we will be his people. He will be with us the way that he was with Adam and Eve before they had to hide in shame because of their nakedness. That relationship, that closeness, that walking with God will be restored. You will be able to walk with God in the garden. Actually. You're not going to sit in your living room and pray 
to a God you can't necessarily see. You will speak with God face to face in the next life. His presence will be restored. And not just his presence directly with us, but his presence actually is baked into every believer through the presence of the Spirit. He dwells within each of us. That's the first way. The second way in the restoration, God promises that evil will be confronted. Whatever suffering you face, whatever evil is in this world, whatever wickedness we see happening, the wars, the famines, the selfishness, the the unfairness, the way that we lament governments and Wall Street and all of the things that cause us turmoil, every ounce of enemy and wickedness in our life gets obliterated and wiped off the face of the earth. And only goodness remains. And third, there's a promise of a restored land. The creation will again function the way it's supposed to. We get to be a people that enjoy the earth and every good fruit that God has given us for consumption. We don't deal with things like pollution. We don't have climate debates. Because the world itself, the creation itself, that in many ways works against us because of sin, gets to be restored. And so God's presence gets restored The enemies get dealt with, the land gets restored, and we all get to live in glory with the Lord. And the book of Joel promises that to the people in the midst of judgment. But repentance is the key. If you don't have a heart that repents, that deeply seeks to run after your Savior, if you don't have a heart that when you mess up, instead of hiding itself in shame, runs into the arms of the Father, I want to beseech you As Joel did, wake up, listen, repent, get on your knees before God. Cry out to him for forgiveness and for mercy. And God is a God who relents, who loves as much as he judges. Let's pray. God, we thank you for hard words that are meant to bring us into a deeper truth and abiding with you. We thank you that even words of judgment are words of mercy and grace under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We praise you that when we hear of the impending turmoil and judgment, that we can rejoice because death has no sting for us as God's people. And so, Lord, we pray for those we know who don't know Jesus. We don't rest in the secure arms of a Savior because for them, passages like this are gloomy, terrifying. So Lord, lift us up in the hope that is your Son. Remind us of our grace that is new every morning that we get to experience. And Lord, we pray that you would just mess with our heart like a surgeon (laughs) to pull out the things that are not of you to move us more and more into line with who you are and what you want for our lives. We pray that each of us might take time in the next week to repent, to get on our knees before God and to cry out for mercy. We love you. We praise you. All his people said, amen.